This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Christmas came early this week, courtesy of everyone's favorite Trump toady, former chief of staff Mark Meadows, and his now famous PowerPoint to overturn the 2020 election. If you haven't had a chance to look at this document, do so now. It's a startling piece of conspiratorial thought and outright bullshit that nearly succeeded in propagating an American coup. Former Trump aide Mark Meadows gave investigators a January 5th email regarding a PowerPoint briefing. It was titled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference and Options for the 6th of January that would be used on Capitol Hill. Last Thursday, the January 6th committee released slides from the PowerPoint calling for then-President Trump to declare a national security emergency in order to delay the certification of the results of the 2020 election. The presentation was referred to an email provided to the committee by Meadows, who had run into a hornet's nest of late, angering both his psychotic former boss for spilling the beans on his COVID diagnosis and the American people for trying to end democracy. Now comes this PowerPoint, which is nothing short of a blueprint for fucking treason. PowerPoint, PowerPoint, PowerPoint. The PowerPoint presentation, which spanned 38 pages and was titled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference and Options for January 6th, was part of an email sent on January 5th, the day before the attack on the Capitol. The email pertained to a briefing that was to be provided on the Hill. Hugo Lowell of The Guardian tweeted slides from the presentation on Thursday detailing a conspiracy theory-laden plan for Vice President Pence to install Republican electors in states where fraud occurred and for Trump to declare a national emergency and for all electronic voting to be rendered invalid, citing foreign control of electronic voting systems. Among the recommendations, Trump could declare a national security emergency to delay the certification of votes. Or he could claim that other countries had messed with the election and declare all electronic voting invalid. The release of the PowerPoint slides laying out options to overthrow democracy comes a day after the committee noted in a letter that Meadows had provided text messages in which he discussed a highly controversial plan to overturn the election results by appointing alternate electors in certain states. I love it, Meadows replied to the idea, which was sent to him by a lawmaker. Meadows discussed the same plan, which was described as a direct and collateral attack in a separate email. The letter referenced the PowerPoint presentation as well, but did not provide details of its content. You know, you can start from the proposition that everything they were doing after learning definitively this was not a rigged election, was a crime. It was a conspiracy to commit offenses against the United States by overturning a presidential election. And Mark Meadows should go the way of Steve Bannon. He should be voted in contempt, referred for criminal prosecution, and indicted. The document, which was intended to be presented to members of Congress before they met in a joint session to certify President Joe Biden's 2020 electoral college victory, opens with an allegation that the Chinese government systematically gained control over the U.S. election system through compromised electronic voting machines, which could not be trusted to provide an accurate vote count. This is just yet 
another piece, an astounding, historic and disturbing PowerPoint, but just one additional document that shows the efforts and extremes to which Trump loyalists and supporters are going in order to try to help him prevent a lawfully, constitutionally elected new president yeah. from taking office. The presentation lays out a theory identical to that which was offered up by Trump campaign attorneys Rudy fucking Giuliani and Sidney the Kraken Powell at a now infamous press conference held at Republican National Committee headquarters on the 19th of November in 2020. What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States. The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, and the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well, not just Dominion, were created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure he never lost an election. None of what Powell alleged about either Dominion or Smartmatic had any basis in reality, and both companies have subsequently filed billion dollar defamation lawsuits against her. Are you planning to file actual lawsuits for defamation? Yes. Against who? Uh, our focus right now is on Sidney Powell, and, and, and there's a very good reason for that. She is, by far in our opinion, uh, the most egregious and prolific purveyor of the falsities against Dominion. Her statements have caused real damage. They're demonstrably false. Um, in our opinion, it, it's extremely easy to verify that we were not created in Venezuela. Um, you know, that's just that's just one of the many of the crazy allegations made against us. Several slides lay out a scenario under which ballots in all 50 states would have been seized by the U.S. Marshal Service and held for a 50-state hand recount conducted by select federalized National Guard units under the supervision of a trusted lead counter to be appointed by then-President Trump. All right, now to that extraordinary rebuke from top military leaders pushing back against the talk of imposing martial law that's reportedly swirling inside the Trump White House. The Secretary of the Army and the Army Chief of Staff having to release a joint statement saying in part, quote, there is no role for the U.S. military in determining the outcome of an American election. Mr. Flynn, a retired three-star army general who lasted just three weeks as Trump's first national security advisor and was ultimately pardoned for lying to the FBI, reportedly pushed a top Defense Department official he had once worked with to help use National Guard units to reverse the results of the election his former boss had lost. He could immediately, on his order, seize every single one of these machines around the country on his order. Within the swing states, if he wanted to, he could take military capabilities and basically rerun an election in each of those states. I mean, it's not unprecedented. I mean, these people out there talking about martial law, it's like it's something that we've never done. We've done, the martial law has been instituted 64, 64 times. In Betrayal, the final act of the Trump show, Jonathan Call reported that Flynn placed a call to then acting under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Ezra Cohen, in late 2020, just days after having received a presidential pardon from Trump. The ex-general reportedly told his former aide to immediately return to Washington for an official trip that he was on. 
We need you, Mr. Flynn reportedly said before telling Mr. Cohen that he would need to obtain signed orders to seize ballots and take extraordinary measures to stop Democrats from stealing the election. When the Defense Department official replied that the election was over and it was time to move on, Mr. Flynn berated him for being a quitter and maintained that the election was not over. I was personally horrified watching Mike Flynn, uh, who was a terrific intelligence officer uh, during the War on Terror, who now acting in a demented fashion, seizing uh, ballot boxes, the armed forces in charge of unilaterally conducting elections in swing states, this is thuggery. This is third world behavior. Another slide in the presentation alleges that a computer server in Frankfurt, Germany, operated by a company called Siddle, was used by malicious actors to falsify election results. The alleged German server, which does not fucking exist, also figured in a call Powell made to Cohen's private phone number a number known only within the Pentagon in White House, shortly after he had spoken with Flynn. Joining us now by phone is Sidney Powell. She's a member, obviously, of the president's legal team, also General Michael Flynn's defense attorney, a great American, uh, one of the country's leading appellate attorneys. After Cohen answered the unsolicited phone call, Ms. Powell demanded that he launch a special operations mission to retrieve then Central Intelligence Agency Director Gina Haspel from Germany, where Ms. Powell claimed she was being held after sustaining an injury during a secret mission, which never actually fucking happened, to retrieve the server, which did not exist as part of a cover-up. There has been great controversy as well, as you know, about uh, reports of a raid uh, on a, a company, Cytel, uh, in Germany, which held election data, presumably, uh, and a raid that was carried out by U.S. Uh, U.S. forces, or so goes the report, although the, the forces themselves were not uh, clearly identified, uh, nor the event uh, uh, actually uh, proven. Uh, can you tell us what actually did happen there and uh, what you do know? Well, I know that is one of the server centers. There's also one in Barcelona. So it is related to the entire Smartmatic Dominion software operation. We do not know whether the good guys got the servers or whether the bad guys got them. Uh, being on the outside of the government, we simply don't know. I'm hoping it's the good guys, and if they have that, then there should be scads of evidence of, frankly, an international conspiracy, criminal conspiracy of the worst sort. It is unclear to what extent Meadows or other Trump allies were able to get anyone from the Defense Department to take any real action towards implementing the plans laid out in the presentation. But another document Meadows gave to the committee, an email about having the National Guard on standby, may provide further information on the matter. Regardless of the fact that these fucking lunatics had access to the highest levers of government in which to play out their wildest paranoid fantasy, it's fucking beyond insane. No longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy 
to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. According to the letter from committee chairman Benny Thompson, that email, which was sent from Meadows' personal email account, bore the date of January 5th, one day before the Capitol attack. The letter, which was sent last Wednesday, also explained that the committee had no choice but to move to hold Meadows in contempt of Congress for his refusal to comply with the subpoena. So he has no basis to withhold the information. Uh, and what's more, he came before the committee, at least uh, in, in terms of his counsel, and provided us with thousands of documents. Um, and how can he claim now that talking about the documents he gave us is privileged, but the documents aren't? Uh, when he acknowledged the documents are not privileged. Uh, and so he's tying himself in all kind of knots to try to, I guess, placate the former president. It's unclear what exactly inspired the reversal. Meadows says the committee was not respecting his claims of executive privilege, to which Thompson called bullshit, saying the committee tried repeatedly to identify with specificity the areas of inquiry were subject to privilege, but Meadows wouldn't cooperate. The president has claimed executive privilege. I'm going to honor that. I'm not going to be the first uh, chief of staff to, to actually waive that. It's not mine to waive. It's also possible that Meadows decided to buck the committee after reports began to circulate that his Fuhrer, Trump, was furious at him for revealing a bunch of damning information about how the White House covered up details of Trump's bout with COVID last year. It's also possible that Meadows is just a fucking moron. Well, what the hell is supposed to do, you moron? The material turned over last week is the tip of a massive iceberg. Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney said last week that the committee is preparing to hold several weeks worth of public hearings that will tell the story of the riot at the Capitol in vivid color. She added on Thursday that the committee has met with nearly 300 witnesses, that it is conducting multiple depositions and interviews every week, and that it expects a ruling imminently on whether it can obtain Trump's White House documents. The investigation is firing on all cylinders, she wrote. Bring it on. If Merrick Garland intends to sit on his hands or allow the states to handle prosecution, a trial by media in front of the hot clique lights will provide some measure of accountability or at least satisfaction that these fucking assholes will go down in history as seditious lunatics bent on destroying our democracy. And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa is Jonathan Capehart. The Pulitzer Prize winning journalist has been a member of the Washington Post editorial board since 2007, writing about politics and social issues. He also hosts the podcast Capehart and anchors the weekly Washington Post live show First Look. Capehart is also an MSNBC contributor and the anchor of The Sunday Show with Jonathan Capehart. His MSNBC special, A Promised Land, a conversation with Barack Obama, was nominated in 2021 for an Emmy for outstanding news discussion and analysis. 
At PBS, Capehart serves as a commentator on the PBS NewsHour and is featured on the popular Friday segment, Brooks and Capehart. In addition to his media work, Capehart is a regular moderator of panels at the Aspen Ideas Festival and for the Aspen Institute, the Center for American Progress and the Atlantic Dialogues Conference and the Brussels Forum on the German Marshall Fund. Capehart joins me on Maya Culpa as the January 6th committee moves to hold Mark Meadows in criminal contempt and just how real a threat the GOP and Trump pose in their attempt to subvert future elections. So let's listen now to that conversation. All righty, so Jonathan, on Wednesday, Benny Thompson, chairman of the January 6th committee, announced that they would seek criminal contempt proceedings against one of my favorite characters on this show, Mark fucking Meadows, right? Now, at the heart of Meadows' change of mind was the knowledge that the committee had subpoenaed both his cell phone and his text records. Now, this is in addition to finding, and this blew me away, a 38-page PowerPoint about January 6th. What about that information has him so frightened that he's willing to risk a contempt of Congress charge? Well, it seems to me that Mark Meadows is between a rock and a hard place. So on on the one hand, you've got the January 6th committee, which at one point he was cooperating with. Um, And then on the other hand, you've got Donald Trump, who after the first excerpts of his book came out, of Meadows' book came out, was slamming the book. Uh, And as you well know, if you get you get on the other side of Donald Trump, it's not a it's not a comfortable place to be. And so it seems to me Mark Meadows decided um, lesser of two evils. I'm going to go with getting a contempt charge from Congress instead of um, doing the right thing and going against Donald Trump. But here's the thing, Michael, from from Chairman Thompson's letter, when I read it, and I'm not even, the letter's not even addressed to me. I'm nowhere near this. My blood ran cold when I read the specificity of the things that Mark Meadows had already given the committee and what the committee had already found. That PowerPoint, which was deemed, you know, not privileged, and that's a whole other conversation, But that PowerPoint alone, it would be enough to make me think, oh, my God, they've I'm in trouble. I better cooperate. And instead, he's doing he's doing the opposite and actually doing the doing something worse, suing Speaker Pelosi in the January 6th committee in in a way to try to gum up the wheels and try to slow things down. But Brother Man is like he's caught. I don't see how you read Chairman Thompson's letter and not think that Mark Meadows, given the information that they already have from other people who are cooperating, but also from his own private email and private text messages, that they don't already know the story. I don't see how he how um, how Meadows thinks that he's going to somehow skate away from this at all. Yeah, so you may have seen I had put out a tweet that somehow got picked up by a lot of the media where I said that Mark Meadows is the dumbest asshole on the hill. And I do truly believe that. I really do. With with Paul Gosar being pretty much number two. But I believe that Mark Meadows 
first did this. And I'm not, I wouldn't even put it past the fact that he and Donald had probably talked about this post, of course, the release of the book, that Mark Meadows was actually doing this in order to sell books. And my understanding is that the book is not doing well. And so he decided, I may have made a mistake and it's time for me to go back to the Fuhrer, right, to my supreme leader before I end up getting excommunicated from the cult of Trump. Because one thing that I can tell you from experience, Trump never forgets an act like what Mark Meadows did. He's just sitting like a fucking snake, waiting and waiting for the prey to show up for that moment that Mark Meadows is at his weakest. And that's when Mark Meadows is going to feel the full force and effect of Donald Trump's wrath, right? Rest assured, I've been there, I know it, and so on. Because somewhere along the line, Trump and his sycophants that are surrounding him have all managed to convince Mark Meadows that not testifying, despite all the information that you just stated and I had you know, asked you in this question, is good for him. And, mm-hmm. I, and I, of course, disagree. Uh, yeah, and I want to apologize if you hear, if you hear the sirens. Um, but, you know, again, I don't... Can I just go back to something you said, your theory that Trump and Meadows cooked up this plan to help Meadows sell books? What I'm wondering is what, what made Meadows think that the stuff that did leak out from the book would go over well with Trump. You know, the idea that, you know, saying that, well, he had COVID before the debate and, and all the actions that he took that made Trump, to Trump's mind, I would think, look weak. What made him think that this plan that they may have cooked up would actually inure to his benefit and would not result in this, what's happening right now? You see, that's a great question, Jonathan. Now I understand why you are who you are, right? (laughs) The great interviewer. But that's not what I was saying. Oh. Donald Trump doesn't read. We've talked about that at least a million times on this podcast, and I've said it at least an equal million times in the press. So when Mark Meadows went to Trump and said, hey, I'm putting out a book. Hey, good, good. I hope you sell a lot of copies. Go. He never read the book. And nobody around him read the book either. Now, all of a sudden, the information comes out and Donald blows a fucking gasket. All right. So now it's cleanup time. What can we do? Well, Mark, we're going to attack your book. We're going to say it's a lie. You're not going to testify before the January 6th. These are the conditions that the Supreme Leader is demanding. One of the other things that I believe that this thing did is as you rightly said, it slowed down everything with Congress. I'm thinking about testifying. I'm not thinking. All right. I'm not doing it. I'm going to do it. Now, all of a sudden, the lawsuit, the whole purpose is to slow down this entire investigation in hopes and probably will happen in 2022, unless the Democrats get real freaking serious, the House will change and that they will try to put enough pressure on Republicans to squash this whole thing altogether. This is all part of a massive delay tactic. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and I totally see it. And, and that's why I say to, to Democrats, 
stop paying stop paying attention to the timetable. Yeah, this is this follows the Trump playbook. Get into trouble, threaten to sue, and then file a frivolous lawsuit. And whether you win it or not, or you settle out of court or not, that's not that that's no big deal. The big deal is slowing down the process enough in the hopes that people forget that you're in trouble. And then you can yeah, solve but- things. And then you can sure. solve things out of sight. But the key thing here is by ignoring the timetable. No, let me step. Let me rephrase this. Democrats ignore the timetable and ignore the slowness of all of this and pay attention to the fact that these people are being held accountable in a court of law, that things are happening that will ensure that at a minimum, Either they have to show up and give depositions. If they don't, they're held in contempt of Congress. Um, they you know, could be arrested. They could be thrown into jail. That in the absence of anyone being held accountable for anything during the Trump years, here you have, no matter the timetable, the process in place to do that. Yes, but if I'm not mistaken, being thrown into jail, I believe that the max time period on that contempt charge is 30 days, Right. But that's not but that's not even really as far as I'm concerned, that's not even really the issue here. You're right. It's slow the process down. And the Democrats are just sitting with their hands under their ass, saying, Okay, all right, you know, we're gonna get this. You know, we wanna do it the right way, we wanna do it according to process. Republicans are turning around under this Trumpist theory. We're gonna slow it down to the point that we're gonna have a change. In the House, mm-hmm. based upon the midterms, based upon information that they have gathered and that they believe is accurate, that they will take over the House. And we're going to quash this whole fucking thing once and for all. Therefore, Wait. who wins? Donald. Well, no, that's, that's true. But as you were talking, and yeah, you know, you're right that they are doing this in the hopes of slowing it down. So in the, also in the hopes, and you know, if history is any guide... You know, what will happen is that Republicans will take over the House and they can squash this. But what they can't squash, they can only squash the process as it takes place in the House. What they can't do is mess with it once it's over in the legal process. There they have no control. There they can't really tell judges what to do. And so to my mind, you know what? You know what, committee? Every time someone defies you, yeah, find them in contempt and throw it into the courts so that that way, if you're not in the majority, uh, you, you know, come 2023, your work will continue, but just in another in another forum. Yeah. Now, you may remember when I was testifying before the House Oversight Committee, I went in there voluntarily based upon their invitation for me to appear. And what did people like Paul Gosar and Mark Meadows do? They hung up this dumbass sign of liar, liar, pants on fire. The notion that a representative of the people would put up something so fucking stupid, right, to me was more offensive than even the dumb questions that they were trying to ask. By the way, they never asked questions. Each and every one of them took their five minutes within which to slam me and so on. And I don't know if you remember what I turned around and I had said, you know, to both Meadows who tried, you know, to argue when I stated that Donald Trump is a racist by parading out my friend, Lynn Patton, who I brought to the Trump organization as being um, 
black that therefore, you know, um, you know, she being the token black person at the Trump organization and a made up executive, she was not an executive, is supposed to undermine my statement of what we all know Donald to be. And that is a racist. And I turned around and I said to him, it's that sort of behavior as I pointed to that ridiculous poster, right? that I'm responsible for. I was even taking responsibility for the fact that I gave them an opportunity to put up that stupid sign, right? I'm responsible for your silliness because I did the same thing that you're doing now for 10 years. I protected Mr. Trump for 10 years. That's the mistake that Mark Meadows is making yet again. You have to look at history to see what happened. Look what happened to me as I tried to explain to them, right? I'm going to prison because of that man's infidelity, because he cheated on Melania, not once, but twice, Karen McDougal and then Stormy Daniels. So, you know, these were all part of the campaign finance violation that I was responsible for. But none of these people want to look past. I don't know what it is that they think is going to happen. Are they going to be like the Goebbels or the, you know, um, you know, to Hitler, where they're going to be like second, third, fourth in command. I don't know what the fuck they're thinking. I'm really lost by, by the lack of morality of these people who are our representatives. I mean, they represent the United States of America, their constituency, not Donald. Well, I mean, well, Michael, I mean, well, one, maybe they think that, you know, and there's lots of examples. You're among them that Donald Trump has no loyalty. His only loyalty is to himself. But for some reason, and we've seen it time and time again, folks think that they will that they won't end up having the same outcome that you've had, that other people have had where it seems like they all think that they're invincible and that they're going to stay in the good graces of Donald Trump. And time and time again, we have seen that he's fickle. He will turn on you on a dime. He'll, in, you know, as we've seen with um, what's his, the, former pre, the former press secretary, um, Sean, Sean Spicer, you know, fired via Twitter, and then, you know, suddenly he's back, he's back in the fold. The former chief, the former first chief of staff, Reince Priebus, fired by Twitter. And then miraculously, he's back in the fold. I don't understand. Maybe you could you can explain sort of the mental grip, the mental hold uh, that Trump has on these people once they get into his orbit. And then once they're in his orbit and he and he abuses them, and he shows disloyalty, that they hang around. What's that about? Or is that just cultish behavior? Yeah, so first of all, it is cultish behavior. Um, they are all, like myself, they were lacking something, or they are lacking something in themselves that would allow you to be mentally abused by this Fucking weakling, which is really what Donald is. He's a mental weakling. But for some reason, there's this thought that, you know, you're going to be able to be bigger and better than yourself because of your affiliation. You know, Reince Priebus is a perfect example. This is a guy who was made fun of not just by everyone in Trump's orbit, right? 
He wasn't known as Reince Priebus. He was known as Rancid Penis on the Hill. And that's what people referred to him as. And Donald thought it was the fucking funniest thing around. Now, I'm not so sure that I would take it at this stage now. You know, Donald said many nasty things to not just me, but to everyone. And people would ask me, under normal circumstances, you'd smack someone in the head for saying shit like this. Why did you allow Donald to do that? And my response to everyone was always, he does it to his own kids. Why would he not do it to me? And I don't even know the sitting and reflecting back. I'm not even sure I understand my own specific, you know, need for something. I'm, I'm not there yet in order to figure it out. But as it relates to Reince Priebus, where is he now? He's a fucking loser doing nothing. Sean Spicer, go back with that fat ass of yours to Dancing um, with the Stars. He's a fucking loser. And the only way that they felt good about themselves, as we'll call them winners, right, um, is simply by the affiliation to Donald. Nobody would pick up Sean Spicer's phone call. Now he's calling on behalf of Donald, and he's raising millions of dollars. Look at Devin Nunes, another fucking jerk-off, who when I was, when I was um, on the Hill testifying um, to various different committees, maybe had asked three of the five stupidest questions asked of me ever. All of a sudden, he's now, with his vast media experience and technology training, he's going to run a fictitious group, a fictitious company, right, of Trump media and technology, knowing nothing about it. Who knows what he's going to make as a salary? But remember one thing, Donald doesn't pay too well. How long is that even going to last with some fake evaluation of one point? $5 billion or whatever the number is, that's now being investigated by the SEC. So this idiot, Devin Nunes, is leaving Congress. He's going to go work for a fictitious company that may never have any income. How long is that going to last for him? Then what? He's going to go work in a law firm? (laughs) <laughs> maybe he'll end up driving maybe he'll go end up driving a fucking Uber, which is really where he belongs. And I don't mean that to be, you know, um denigrating to Uber drivers. I'm just talking about it's a job that you can get simply by having a driver's license. So then how this is what's mystifying to me. What what I mean, I'm just I'm repeating myself uh, 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 and, you know, there is no answer, Jonathan. There is no answer. I'm sitting here and I'm looking at these people who seem to me sell their souls if they had any, you know, trash their, you know, whatever moral underpinnings that they that they have, if they had any um, putting their putting their lot in with a person who time and time again has proven that he has no loyalty um, um, has even less money and, um, and isn't exactly above board about anything. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, the choices that folks in that orbit face are pretty clear to me. And I know what I would do if I were faced, you know, with those circumstances. And yet there are so many people out there who look and say, yeah, this is, this is a choice I can make. This is easy. I'm going to I'm going to go over here with with Trump in this fetid pool of whatever it is they're doing. And I hate to say the only way to get them out of that pool 
of of shit that's that dumpster stink is you have to be removed from it as i was and placed in otisville and you have to have plenty of time to reflect upon the mistakes that you made in order to understand the mistakes that you're making but jonathan let me move on for a second because this is another important topic Mm-hmm. A new essay by Barton Gelman in The Atlantic is making waves for its prediction about how Donald Trump will subvert the 2024 election. Now, Gelman writes that January 6, 2020 was practice and that the next coup has already begun. He points to moves that the GOP has taken to control state legislators, change voting laws, and appoint themselves to local election boards. Beyond that is the fact that there are tens of millions of Americans who not only believe that the election was stolen, but support violence as a means to defeating what they say is an illegitimate president. Discuss with me how dire you believe the situation to be. Do you think that our democratic system truly is in jeopardy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I haven't been able to finish um, Barton Gelman's piece yet. But it is important that it is that it is out there. When Trump was running for president in 2016, Michael, I wrote um, a column calling him out for his um, his uh, campaign announcement speech, where he said within a couple of minutes that Mexicans were rapists. And I said that this kind of language from a person running to be president of the United States is corrosive to American political discourse and doesn't belong in presidential politics and that people need to be on guard. Um, it was that column that you know Trump had printed out for, for himself and where he scrawled at the top, Jonathan, K, Jonathan you are the racist, um, stop your hate, best wishes, Donald Trump. Um, and I looked and I thought, this, Okay, this is insane um, that he's reacting this way. But I kept, as the campaign went on, I kept raising the red flag and saying to people, you might think this is funny. You might think this is really fun and like catnip and you watch his rallies because you want to see, oh my God, what's he going to say next? But each time he said something, we lost something. And when I knew that his campaign was no longer a joke, it was something that everyone needed to take seriously was when he attacked John McCain's military service and his POW status. And I watched something said the next poll that comes out, pay attention to that. And what ended up happening after he denigrated John McCain, war hero, patriot, the pre the, the, the 2008 Republican nominee for president, Donald Trump's poll numbers went up. That's when I knew we were in trouble. That's when I knew that folks needed to start taking Donald Trump extra seriously. And I remember- yeah, So after- Jonathan, Jonathan, let me just stop you for a quick second. Yeah. Here. I apologize, but he actually said more than just Mexicans were rapists. Oh no, fact, I was just, yeah, he said a lot. He goes, when Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. And then he followed up with another brilliant comment, a statement. They're sending people that have a lot of problems and they're bringing those problems with us. First of all, it's not with us. It should have been to us, right? They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists, right? They're, they're, they're murderers, you know, 
and some, I assume, are good people. That's really the remark, right, that bothered me the most because it's so reminiscent of what we also saw in Charlottesville. Charlottesville. Right, during that gigantic, you know, battle where you had people walking down the streets with the German slogan, Jews will not replace us, right? And I wondered, right after that happened and after the stupid-ass comment that came out of Donald's mouth, how does he answer to his grandkids, the Kushner kids, who are modern Orthodox Jews. How do you answer them, hey, Grandpa, you know, why didn't you say something when these people were walking down the street saying shit like Jews will not replace us, a, sl- a, you know, a slogan that was so reminiscent of World War II? You know, um, I think to answer your question, when it comes to him, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. I don't think he's even thought that far ahead about what his grandkids will will ask him. The I think the better question is, what do um, um, Ivanka and Jared say to their kids when they ask, why did grandpa say that? And what did you say? What did you do to to defend to defend us? What did you do to curb that kind of that kind of rhetoric? I'm more curious about that. And that is when, whenever we hear the story, if we ever do, that is when we will find out what their moral core is, if they have any, what, what they stand for, what, they, what are they grounded in? And you know, to, to go to the, the, you know, the real crux of Barton's piece into the constitution, after, after Trump was elected, but in the transition, he did that stupid press conference where he said, here are my taxes, all those pages or all those papers where he said, I got to sign all these papers to put my company in a whatever, which he never did. And I remember writing a piece where I said, it is in this moment where we're talking about the emoluments clause and the possibility of a president profiting from the presidency. This is, it was then that I realized that the Constitution is only as strong as the man who swears to uphold and protect it, and man because we've only had men presidents, and he was about to take the oath of office. And it was then that I realized the Constitution and therefore our democracy is actually very fragile and is hanging on by a string. That was in November, December 2016. Fast forward to Charlottesville. Fast forward to babies in jail on the bo- on, on the border. Fast forward to all the horrors that we have seen come out of the Oval Office, ignoring a global pandemic, telling people that, oh, it's no big deal. It's like the flu. All of those things were just more and more signs that our Constitution was being undermined, that our democracy was being undermined. And then after the election of 2020, and, you know, it, you know, the big lie, the election's being stolen, he's stealing it from us. And then the insurrection, what, we're, what, we, what we saw on January 6th and what we have seen every day since then is a constant effort to undermine, the underpin- undermine our democracy, undermine our constitution. And, you know, there's this saying, what do you call a failed coup? practice. And what Barton's piece is showing is that the practice is ongoing, that the practice is becoming more professionalized. 
not at the national level, but at the state and local level, where when we start having these big elections, the midterms in 22 and the presidential in 24, that these people who've been practicing since January 6th are going to be feel like, they OK, now we're in the game and now right. it's time to activate. Right. Now, Jonathan, you know why he's doing all this? You know why he wants the destruction of our democracy in the Constitution? Because that's exactly how autocracies are established. Exactly that way. The first thing you do is you destroy people's First Amendment rights. And then, of course, you have the you enact a military like what he had on January 6th with his Um, you know, faux Trump army. But let's go back to Gelman for a second, because Gelman writes in his piece that Trump has built the first American mass political movement in the past century that is ready to fight by any means necessary, including bloodshed for its cause. In what way has Trump operationalized this violence or even the threat of violence to achieve his ends? Well, one, I mean, he's he's given um, aid and comfort aid in the sense that when he was president and the violent rhetoric was all around, you know, or or violent actions like at his campaign rallies, he would say to people, um, you know, oh, like the good old days, you know, you could you could beat people up and oh, if you get in trouble, I'll pay your legal fees, Um, you know, from the from the White House, from the Oval Office, condoning violence that was was happening. And then you know, the, the, the starkest, starkest example of that was on January 6th, hearing about sitting Republican members of Congress pleading with the White House, pleading with him, pleading with aides close to him who they knew were with him, saying to him, please send out a tweet, please put out a video, please send the National Guard. We're under attack. And he ignored it while watching it all unfold on television. And enjoying Um, it. Right, and enjoying it. That is why. Oh, and then on top of it all, perpetuating the big lie and hammering those people who don't perpetuate the big lie in the way that he does. That is why you have people now who feel like they are emboldened and that it is their duty to defend the country for Donald Trump. And, you know, this is coming at a time when the country is changing, when the demographics of the country are changing. And under normal circumstances, that leads to fear and discomfort and what's happening to us. But when you have a demagogue who is pouring gasoline on those fears, who's stoking those fears, and doing so from the highest office in the land, and is someone who has autocrat who who loves autocrats and pushes away our allies of, of seven decades, that has an impact. And the impact is our democracy is hanging on by a thread. And the next two elections, 22 and 24, are going to determine whether American democracy as we have known it since since our nation's founding is going to crumble. So, Jonathan, swirling around the January 6th investigation is the DOJ's reluctance to go after the high-ranking former Trump White House officials most responsible for the January 6th insurrection, as well as attempts to subvert the election. 
Should Merrick Garland be going after Trump more aggressively, if only just to send a message that no one is above the law, which of course was the Democratic slogan? What else can be done or do you think should be done? Well, on this issue, I understand the, you know, where that question comes from. I understand why Democrats, a lot of Democrats are, you know, they they are anxious and they're worried that Merrick Garland does not see the danger, you know, sign that's flashing in front of all of us. Excuse me. But I do understand from the attorney general's perspective and not just him from you know, from legal folks who look at this and say, when you have something that is as legally sensitive and politically sensitive as going, as investigating a former president of the United States, you have to be, you have to tread carefully and tread carefully, not in the sense that you're afraid to to do anything or you're afraid to take action, but you have to tread carefully to ensure that if and when you do take action, all of the I's are dotted, all of the T's are crossed, and that no one can, at least from a legal basis, say that what you are doing is goes against the law, goes against the Constitution, and is um, and is political retribution by one party against the pres- the former president of the other party. So process-wise, I, I get what, um, what the attorney general is doing. And also, even though the red flags and the reds, you know, the warning lights are flashing, we do have to take seriously what it means to, to pursue either legal action or investigatory action against against a former president. Leave aside who Donald Trump is and how corrosive he was to the presidency and, and to the Oval Office and to American democracy and the Constitution. Just, you know, as a concept, what does it mean to investigate a former president? We have to be, we have to appreciate the fact that Merrick Garland the attorney general's office, our government has never been in this position before. We're asking a lot of of leaders who are on a road that has no roadmap. This is unprecedented. And I would would rather they proceed, well, one, I would like for them to proceed, but in that procession, I want to make sure that they are doing it as carefully as possible, because what would be worse than proceeding slowly, proceeding so quickly that you destroy any possibility, any opportunity to hold people accountable in the future. And in the end, we have to ensure that January 6th and the corrosiveness of Donald Trump never happens again. But it is a process that in our let's get let's get it now, let's do it now, um, it won't be appreciated. But we have but we have to go this way. And I think that I'm trying to remember who said this on television when the Bannon indictment came down. Um, maybe it was Glenn Kirshner who said he found it very, very interesting that Merrick Garland, rather than making the doing the indictment himself, 
put it in the hands of a grand jury. And they indicted Steve Bannon. And he made the point that by giving the grand jury the power to do that, the attorney general ceded control and that grand juries are known to be wildly independent. And when you put that, when you put that kind of decision in the hands of a grand jury, which operates in secret, that has subpoena power and has the power to indict, you never know where they're going to go. And so when you have an attorney general who has the power in his hands, but also there's the grand jury over here, I look at that and think, well, maybe things are maybe things behind the scenes are proceeding in a way that we can't see and proceeding down a road that we can't see and farther down the road than we can see. Unfortunately, because we can't see it, we think nothing is happening. And I understand the fear that because you can't see it, well, maybe nothing is happening. But I don't buy that. I don't buy that for a second. Yeah. And my biggest fear is not so much the fact that everybody wants this to be expeditious. We're coming on a one-year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection. One year. And what do we have out of it? We have a whole group of these assholes that decide that they're going to avoid subpoenas, that they're not going to testify. There's all of this work that was done by, we'll say, the Democrats. And then in order to get an answer into what really went on here, every person that was involved in that has basically shied away from testimony. Now, I get it that you don't want your prosecutors, you don't want your AG to be politicized. However, however, inaction is as bad as overreaction. Because our democracy depends upon this. You cannot have a coup against the United States, against the Capitol, against our democracy, against the Constitution, and allow people to get away with it simply because the fucker that was behind the whole thing happened to have been the former president. Well, Michael, it's, I mean, I think it's a little unfair to say that there has been inaction. Um, we've what there's like 600 insurrectionists who have been charged, a lot of them in jail. Some of them um, have been uh, found guilty. You've got in terms of helping the select committee, we focus on the marquee names and how they're defying subpoenas. But there are hundreds of people who are voluntarily cooperating with the committee, which is why they are able to send these letters and send these subpoenas with very specific things that they're that they are looking for, um, I I I just think it's wrong to say that there that there is inaction. Um, it is not it is not happening fast enough. I understand that it's not happening fast enough, but good. These folks, these insurrectionists, all right, they're the lowest level denominator in this entire equation, 
right? They're not the ones who we're looking for. They're not the ones who we want. What we wanted, the people like Mark Meadows that were right there in on it with their cell phone and text records and their emails from their private email accounts and so on. That's really what we want because that's what we need in order to get to the bottom of it. You could have that schmucky shaman that was sitting there with, you know, with his stupid hat and his pelts on. And at the end of the day, that's not going to bring us one step closer. Is it going to make some people feel better? Hey, that there's something going on? Sure. You break into the Capitol, you steal Nancy Pelosi's, you know, computer, you wreck the place causing millions of dollars to to the people's house. Yeah, you should be held responsible. But that's not going to bring us to the justice that we're all looking for, which is for those people that created this, that whole January 5th meeting that took place at the, uh, the, the hotel across the street. You know, the Willard. That's the Willard. That's what we want. We want to know what was going on, who was involved, because that will stop the whole notion of Donald Trump, the right. thought that he may run again in 2024, which, by the way, he is not. Oh, you know, I, I'm glad you said that because I was going to ask you that later We're on. We're going to save that to the end, right? <laughs> but but to <laughs> but to your to your point, Michael, you just laid out a series of facts that we know because of you know the greatness of journalism and journalists continuing to do reporting and and telling the story. But also, let's not forget that the select committee through its letters to all these folks asking for them to hand over documentation and to show up for depositions, those letters are not just, we hereby order you to come visit. No, these are two, three-page, single-space letters with details, with specifics about the information that they're looking for. This meeting that happened on this date, this text message that you sent on this date at this time, the other thing about that um, letter from Chairman Thompson to Mark Meadows that I don't think has gotten enough attention, he talks about, I think it was a text message to a member of Congress. My thought was, who's that member of Congress? And to my mind, if the chairman is saying to a member of Congress in a letter, that tells me he knows who that member of Congress is. The committee knows who that member of Congress is. And if the committee knows about a member of communications with a member of Congress, that means they've got communications, whether it's text messages, emails, what have you, with a whole bunch of members of Congress. That tells me that the select committee has a whole lot more information than we are privy to right now. And it is my fervent hope, because I was watching Morning Joe um, today where they were talking about how the select committee needs to be having these hearings televised daily, like the Benghazi hearings were during um, the Obama mm -hmm. administration. It is my fervent hope that once we get past the holidays and Congress is back and, and you know, with the January 6th anniversary, insurrection anniversary, coming up right after the new year, that we start seeing televised hearings, that we start reminding the American people of why January 6th was a horror and a stain on our democracy and a, and a stain on our constitution. And here, let's see the people who we know were a part of it and let them come before the American people and, and 
tell the American people what they did or didn't do. And for some people, tell them, plead the fifth in front of the American people as they watch news, cable news, MSNBC and CNN show on a loop footage from the insurrection and, and defy the American people to think that that was just a normal tourist day. And let's not forget that Mark Meadows now, with the release of this book, has really screwed himself something serious. Uh, and as far as taking the fifth, you cannot take the fifth after placing information into a book, right? And then say, well, that's executive privilege. I can't discuss it. That's a big problem. But just moving forward for a sec, in the wake of, and this is one of my top 10 all-time haters, right? In the wake of Lauren Boebert's disgusting attack on Representative Ilhan Omar, as well as Marjorie Taylor Greene's defense of Boebert that they, along with Paul Gosar and Matt Gates, represent the modern face of the Republican Party. Now, it's been suggested that the middle road, fiscal conservatives, no longer exist, or at least is no longer tenable. The GOP is now a party of extremists with what was once the fringe, now the vanguard of the party. If you would, discuss this with my listeners. Oh, I mean, there was a time when Lauren Boebert and that video would have been, she she would have been sidelined from pretty much anything in the Republican caucus in the old days. And I'm talking about in the in the Republican Party of George W. Bush when he was president. Um, she would have been reprimanded. She would have been held accountable in some way. She might have even been pushed to say she's not running for reelection. I mean, that was what the Republican Party used to be. Now, the Republican Party is a party where the leader of the Repu- the House Republican Caucus is so desperate, one, for a Republican majority to take over uh, in 2023, but two, to also become Speaker of the House, that he is willing to turn a blind eye to Paul Gosar and the, the anime um, video with AOC's face superimposed on uh, uh, a character that's killed or Lauren Boebert and her wildly Islamophobic video, or Marjorie Taylor Greene and her fill-in-the-blank antic of the day, that he's silent on that. And if he thinks by being silent now in the minority will will get him the majority and get him the speaker's gavel, well, then what makes him think that these folks who were once the fringe won't just push him aside, put someone else in as speaker, or if he is speaker, he can't control them. Because you didn't control us when you didn't have the gavel. What makes you think you can tell us what to do now? And so that is the the big problem for Kevin McCarthy, for the Republican caucus, for the Republican party. And that is a big problem for the country. Because again, as we've been discussing, Republicans more likely than not, will be will take over the majority in the House. Right. And but it's also, it, Jonathan, big problems for the Democratic Party. You know, we, we can't just isolate out Kevin McCarthy and Republicans in terms of what to do with this 
rogue jerk, you know, with this Islamophobic asshole. That's not, that's not enough. You know, Politico had a great piece, um, I think it came out yesterday, referring, you know, where they, he, they claim referring Boebert to the House Ethics Committee or calling up a measure tackling Islamophobia, this is the line that bothered me, are among the actions being discussed by Democratic leaders to deal with the Colorado conservative, right? And that's according to people familiar with this matter. Okay, here's my problem with that. It's fucking Islamophobia. I mean, it doesn't have to take a more than a split second to turn around to say what Boebert said to Representative Omar is Islamophobic. End of story. Drop the fucking mic. She needs to be immediately removed from all of her committees. This isn't something to discuss. This is why people look at the Democrats as being toothless. It's time It's time to put on the fucking gloves and start swinging. The same shit with Merrick Garland. Yes, we want everything to go right. Sitting by the fire, eating s'mores, singing kumbaya fucking ya. No, no. What? This asshole said is fucking Islamophobic. And there's nobody that will ever convince me or any legitimate thinking person to the contrary. She needs to be addressed and not, well, let's discuss it. Let's figure out what we're going to do. You know, I think that maybe. No, there needs to be swift and decisive action. Well, I mean, what she said was denounced immediately as Islamophobic by Democrats and when they and I, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts, I believe, has already introduced uh, either not legislation, but um, a, a resolution or a petition to start the process of holding Bobert, holding Bobert accountable. But I understand you and I hear what you're saying that you know, these actions need to be taken, but they need to be, they need to be taken in the way that they can be done that they can be done in the house. What you're arguing for in all of these examples is, you know, rules and regulations and all of that be damned, just do what you gotta do. But that was the, that was the Trump administration. And here's where we are. So as, as, as annoying and frustrating as it is to watch Democrats utilize the process to hold, to, to get things done, I don't hear, I mean, the Democrats have already done what Kevin McCarthy refused to do. The Democrats removed Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committees. The Democrats removed Paul Gosar from his committees. The Democrats are going to remove uh, Lauren Boebert from her committees while also being cognizant of the fact that if and when they are in the minority come 2023, that the same thing is going to be done to them for lesser if imaginary charges and that there are Democrats uh, in the majority right now who know they have a target on their back for removal from their committees if they are in the minority. They already know it. But yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Jonathan, as far as I'm concerned, she should have been removed one, two, three. The the statement is the statement. There's nothing else to say right. about it. And what you're referring to right. is they were uh, you're referring to Democratic leaders who are considering an anti-Islamophobia uh, Islamophobia bill in order to prevent this from happening again. But I actually I just want to ask you a different question for a second. 
because it ties into this. I'm curious, how worried are you about the midterm elections? I am, right? And the prospect of the inmates taking over the asylum. Because all signs right now point to the GOP delivering the Democrats a fucking shellacking, right? In normal times, one would just chalk this up to, you know, vagaries of our two-party system, right? It happens. You take over the White House, we take over the House of Representatives. But today... There is so much more at stake. How important is the midterm? And what happens should the GOP retake the majority? What do you think happens then? Okay, so one, we have to keep something in mind. No, leave aside Boebert, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Gosar, the fecklessness of, of House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Only two times in the last hundred years or so has the party that won the White House retained control of, mm-hmm. of Congress or the House of Representatives in the following midterm elections. The most recent time was 2002 um, in the, the, uh, pre- during the presidency of George W. Bush. So we're 20 years out from that. So history is going against Democrats regardless. So you have history going against Democrats. Next up, redistricting. Uh, every 10 years because of the census, you know, you find out where people live and then you redraw the boundaries and new districts are made. Some states lose seats, some states gain seats. And then the legislatures and whoever's dominating them at the time. And in, right now, Republicans dominate the state legislatures. They're drawing districts that will favor their candidates and cement their hold, their hold on power. So that's the other thing that Democrats have going against them. I had Rachel Bittekoffer, the election forecaster, who predicted the Democrats would retake the House in 2018. And she predicted it, predicted the number of seats within two seats. And she got it right. And I had her come on my show. And I remember asking her beforehand, hey, can you give us the top five or 10 races we should watch uh, for in terms of, you know, what's going to happen to the House? And she said, I can't do that because Democrats are going to lose 10 seats before our votes even cast because of redistricting. So Democrats know this. They know, they know that they are behind the eight ball and that they are hoping that 2022 is going to be like 2002. But, you know, to your question about um, what life is going to be like with a Republican majority, if if that indeed happens, um, it will be, and, and Mitch McConnell said this about the Senate, in terms of you know blowing up the filibuster, that it would be scorched earth. Well, that's what's going to happen in the House. Uh, Democrats will be in the minority, which is you know you know assuming they are not they don't you know eke it out in twenty two. Being in the minority in normal circumstances is rough. You have no power. You have no say. You don't have the bully pulpit pulpit, and you don't have the gavels. In all, in all the committees in terms of chairmanship. But now, because we have this radical fringe that is now the mainstream of the Republican Party, these are people who are not on Capitol Hill to govern. They're not there to legislate. They are there to blow things up. And they're going to blow things up by removing Democrats from committees, they're going to blow things up by censuring people. They're going to blow things up by, you know, 
whacking budgets, they are there to ensure that government doesn't work. And then because a lot of them are enthralled to Donald Trump and the big lie and to pleasing him, you know, and, and his followers going into 2024, the presidential election, they, they have no incentive to do anything that um, would be seen as giving Democrats any kind of avenue to come back. Well, did your guest at any point in time turn around and discuss with you, say, for example, Stacey Abrams' run for governor in, um, in Georgia? I mean, obviously, you know, we believe uh, that she almost single-handedly turned Georgia purple, right? Uh, did your guest say anything about how she thinks that um, Stacey will do this time around? Um, or did she even say anything about, you know, does David Perdue challenging Kemp uh, from the right help or hurt her candidacy? Okay, so that conversation I had with Rachel was like six months ago. It was a long time ago. So Stacey Abrams wasn't even... I mean, folks were hoping she'd run for governor, but that wasn't even the conversation. The fact that Stacey Abrams is now running for governor of Georgia was the first great sign that um, the two Senate seats, partic well, particularly Raphael Warnock's seat, because he is up for yep. um, election for you know a six-year term, a great sign that he that he could survive. That he could that he could win a full six a full six year term. The fact that she lost the the governorship in, in Georgia because she was running against Brian Kemp, who was as Secretary of State the referee in the election. The fact that she's going for for a rematch gives a lot of people hope that she can draw people to the polls. And third, the third glimmer of hope was the fact that David Perdue is jumping into the race jumping into the race against Brian Kemp. Now we know in politics, when you've got a, a race like this and you've got an incumbent, the last thing the incumbent wants is a primary challenge, no matter where it's coming from. They don't want a primary challenge. But when you're Brian Kemp, do you really want a primary challenge from your right? And you're so far to the right that, you know, if the earth were flat, you're you know, wavering on the edge. So for, for Democrats in Georgia, these three things are very, very hopeful signs that at least in Georgia, there could be really good news coming out of the Peach State. Um, and so, you know, there were a lot of people who were hoping that Stacey Abrams would, would have run for Senate way back, but maybe her staying out was the smarter move. And she has shown time and time again that she is probably one of the smartest people in the party. One of the and definitely, smartest and definitely, yep, and definitely resilient. That's certainly right. And sure. one of the, the the best strategists in the party. You know, when she um, ran for a big office and lost, she didn't sulk. She spent those four years building an infrastructure that made it possible for Joe Biden to win the state. Uh, when he run, ran for president, and for not one but two senators, to, Democratic senators, to be elected in Georgia. That is because of the infrastructure Stacey Abrams put in place, and she's been continually building it since the 2020 election. And, you know, from her vantage point, hopefully 
that apparatus that is there is going to make her the next governor of Georgia. Well, let's hope. I'm, I'm a fan of hers. So, Jonathan, as I told you, the hour goes by really, really quick. And I have just one question, which is a little personal, you know, to you. A recent Axios poll of 850 college students, and I know you're not in college, but finds that 71% of Democrats would not go on a date with someone who voted for Donald Trump. Whereas just 31% of Republicans surveyed said that they would not go on a date with a Biden voter. The results predictably had the right in a fury, right? I mean, they were just completely out of their mind. But I frankly am not surprised. It's pretty darn hard to maintain a conversation with someone who still thinks that the election was stolen, you know, much less to date them. I'm curious how you feel if you were single. Would you date a Trump voter? No, I wouldn't. And actually, this came up at something I did with um, Hugh Hewitt last night, where he asked me um, to name one good thing Donald Trump did. And I said, I can't name any. Um, I said, I am not I'm not saying that every person who voted for Donald Trump is an awful person. But what I am saying is, if you expect me to put my humanity and my dignity aside just to placate you because you voted for Donald Trump, a man who said that Mexicans were rapists and murderers, and some of them, I guess, are good people, or as a candidate, or who as president ceded the moral authority of the Oval Office by saying that there were very fine people on both sides of a neo-Nazi rally. <laughs> Or you want me to think that, or just ignore the fact that he jailed babies, built, jailed babies on the border, on, on our southern border. If I'm supposed to ignore that just to date you, well, there's some, that says more about me. And so, you know, if I were single and I were faced with a really cute, hot guy who says to me, well, you know, I, you know, I voted for Donald Trump. That's it. We are done because that says to me <laughs> that you don't, my humanity and my dignity mean nothing to you. Yep. Well, um, can't argue with you on that one. You know, um, I would turn around and say that there are some things that I would give Donald credit for. Uh, you know, the warp speed of the coronavirus vaccine. The only problem is he shit on his own stake by turning around and deciding that he wasn't going to talk about it, get the vaccination himself, right? And instead of doing public service announcements like President Obama did, um, George Bush did, um, you know, as well as Bill Clinton, that's what a leader does, Right. That's what a leader is supposed to do to show the American people. I stand behind it. I mean, he wanted the Nobel Peace Prize for it. Um, instead, could you imagine Jared Kushner? Jared Kushner was potentially up for the Nobel Peace Prize for his amazing work in in the Middle East, because you see the extent of the peace that's there. I mean, we they did move, you know, the embassy. Big deal. Right. But. Jonathan, like I said, the hour goes by fast. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Um, look forward you know, to the next one and uh, look forward to seeing you in person now that I'm allowed out. <laughs> <laughs> Michael, thank you very, very much. This is fun. Thank you, Jonathan. And now for today's mea culpa. 
I'm not going to lie, folks. There are moments when I watch the shameless lying and stalling antics related to the January 6th committee's investigation that I'm tempted to throw my fucking television out the window onto Park Avenue. I don't know if destruction of my own property is a parole violation, and I don't intend to find out. Nonetheless, the world is upside down at the moment, and I can't help but wonder if we're headed for someplace much worse. Each day the committee brings forth new revelations of sedition by members of Trump and is in a circle without any sense that there will be meaningful accountability delivered by the DOJ. First, there is almost absurd level of culpability borne by Mark Meadows for his spreading of a megaton bomb of bullshit. He was a clearinghouse for what became a vast and sophisticated propaganda effort to disseminate disinformation about the election. In addition, he served as a conduit for fucking crazies like Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn to access the highest levels of government with a relentless pressure campaign compromised of nothing but wild, baseless bullshit. That these people were allowed inside the corridors of government, much less allowed to pressure the Department of Defense to have the National Guard seize voting machines, begs the question how these people were granted that level of access in the first place. All of it is bad, and it shows how close we came to something far worse happening. Now comes news that the insurrection itself connects all the way to the White House with the January 6th committee revealing on Friday that Trump physically met with organizers of the rally two days before the insurrection. This is new information and is the first time that there's been a direct line between the rally, the insurrection, and fucking Trump. Where this goes is anyone's guess. But the next few weeks will prove to be a defining moment in capturing the truth of what happened that terrible day. Let's hope everyone who needs to hear the truth is actually watching. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Hey.